Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Helaman, chapter 11. Nephi was given a rare blessing from the Lord in the previous chapter, a wonderful power that has been bestowed upon but a few of the servants of the Lord, as Joseph Fielding Smith once put it. This was the power, as the Lord told Nephi in Helaman chapter 10, verse 7, that whatsoever ye shall seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and thus shall ye have power among this people. The Lord went on to tell Nephi in the following two verses, verses 8 and 9, that the elements of the earth could be commanded through this same power. If ye shall say unto this temple, it shall be rent in twain, it shall be done. And if ye shall say unto this mountain, be thou cast down and become smooth, it shall be done. Well, Elijah was also among the few of the servants of the Lord, again to use Joseph Fielding Smith's words, to have this power. As President Smith also said, Elijah obtained the keys of power in the priesthood to raise the dead and heal the sick. Beyond this, with both Elijah and Nephi, there was another aspect to this remarkable power. In Elijah's case, he was given the ability to, quote, close the heavens that it did not rain only by his word, and for more than three years there was no rain. And moreover, he had the power to call down fire from heaven to destroy the enemies of the church. In Nephi's case, he was told in Helaman chapter 10, verses 10 through 11, that if ye shall say that God shall smite this people, it shall come to pass. And now behold, I command you that ye shall go and declare unto this people that thus saith the Lord God, who is the Almighty, except ye repent, ye shall be smitten even unto destruction. It is this other, seemingly vindictive aspect of Nephi's newfound power that we were anxious to see as we continued to read Helaman chapter 10. As readers, we are ready for Gadianton's band to finally receive their comeuppance. Instead, however, as Nephi went among the multitudes to offer repentance in chapter 10, undoubtedly in the hope of capitalizing upon all that they had just seen and heard in the events that were outlined in Helaman chapters 7 through 9, the people actually reviled him. Even though he was possessor of Elijah's power to smite the people in their wickedness, Nephi meekly bore their efforts to spurn and imprison him. It seems then that even though it was intimated that Nephi could effect a famine in the previous chapter, when the Lord said in verse 6 that ye shall have power over this people and shall smite the earth with famine and with pestilence and destruction according to the wickedness of the people, it simply was not yet time. But as this chapter, Helaman chapter 11, opens, we will see that this mechanism for bringing the people to remembrance will finally be set into motion. 
And it isn't trial and trouble per se that will bring Nephi's people to remembrance. They are already beset with the trials and troubles incident to war, civil war in fact, as it as seems to be the case in this chapter. But those particular challenges were not bringing the people to a state of humility and remembrance. It is at this point in this chapter that Nephi will exercise the great power that we expected to see earlier, before his short season of suffering in chapter 10, as he returned to preach to the people. So in this chapter, he will cry unto the Lord and say in Helaman chapter 11, verse 4, O Lord, do not suffer, this people shall be destroyed by the sword. But O Lord, rather let there be a famine in the land, to stir them up in remembrance of the Lord their God, and perhaps they will repent and turn unto thee. So, again, from this, we can see that the people were already causing their own problems before this famine came. Their problem was not a lack of problems. Their problem was that their problems were not spurring them to remembrance. As Ogden and Skinner have written, When there was no rain in ancient lands of the scriptures, it meant that there would be famine. And famine often had a humbling effect on the people. As the saying goes, a hungry stomach has a way of loosening up a stiff neck. McConkie and Millet wrote, Famine is one of heaven's most eloquent sermons. When virtually all else has failed to get the attention of the rebellious and turn them to God, famines have succeeded. Famines can strip men of every sense of self-sufficiency and turn their eyes and ears to the voice of heaven. Helaman chapter 11 verse 7 says the people began to remember the Lord their God, and they began to remember the words of Nephi. President Spencer W. Kimball taught in the April 1977 General Conference, the Lord uses the weather sometimes to discipline his people for the violation of his laws. Well, it is natural for us as readers to feel antagonism and frustration towards the people that have treated Nephi so poorly by this point in the story. We can imagine how it would feel to see people ridiculing a modern-day prophet that we know and love in a similar way in today's public square. For this reason, we have to keep our own vindictive tendencies in check when we read this chapter. Nephi did not affect this famine to get back at these people. The text makes it clear that he had a higher and holier regard for the people than that. He had such power because he was a prototype of Christ, who was the perfect possessor of love. Instead, Nephi knew that the ultimate effect of such a famine was that it would save more souls. A famine calculated to save more souls? Well, yes, that is correct. And how could that be? Well, because that was a problem that would prick the hearts of the people. It would remind them of their dependence upon God. This was clearly Nephi's deepest desire in this instance. His love for the people, as well as his prophetic role as an intermediary between them and God, is on full display in his prayer in verses 10 through 16. And we'll look at that prayer in detail when we come to it in our reading. In short, Nephi will meekly ask the Lord to turn away his anger toward the people and to cause it to rain once again. Well, the storytelling narrative will continue after this point in Helaman chapter 11 and take us almost to the end of the timeline in the book of Helaman. Much of what is to follow is of a different literary form uh, that doesn't necessarily push the timeline forward as it has been pushed prior to this. Helaman chapter 12, for example, will be Mormon's commentary, 
And then much of Helaman in chapters 13 through 16 will contain the words of Samuel the Lamanite. This means that as this famine ends in Helaman chapter 11, and we read of the condition of Nephite and Lamanite society in the 85th year of the reign of the judges, which corresponds to 6 BC, we are getting very close to the way things will be when we move into 3rd Nephi. Thus, the prospect of the Savior's appearance is beginning to bloom. Or loom, actually, like the earliest rays of the rising sun, for those like Samuel the Lamanite, that is, that have the eyes to see. Now to do a quick flyover summary of Helaman chapter 11. It has 38 verses. In the first section of this chapter, in verses 1 and 2, we can see that the Nephite nation has erupted into what I think we could call civil war, and this is in the 72nd and 73rd year of the reign of the judges. So the contentions that were appearing in the land at the end of the previous chapter are continuing and they're escalating until it's all-out war. Nephi can see that this is not leading people to humility and leading them to avail themselves of the conditions of repentance, a term that we'll read of soon. And so in verses 3 through 4, he cries unto the Lord and requests that the Lord would effectuate a famine in the land. And he says very specifically in verse 4, let there be a famine in the land to stir them up in remembrance of the Lord their God. So Nephi has already been told when the Lord spoke to him in Helaman chapter 10 that he would, with the receipt of this sealing power, have the ability to call upon the Lord to do such a thing. And so that's what he's doing here. We find in verses 5 and 6 then that a famine does begin. And as the famine goes on and worsens, we find that the war diminishes. And that's how things go into the 74th and 75th year of the reign of the judges. Then in verses 7, 8, and 9, the thing happens that we hope to see happen, which is that the people begin to remember the words of Nephi. And they plead with their leaders to prevail upon Nephi. Very interesting sequence here. Instead of going to the leaders themselves, they are going to Nephi themselves. They ask their leaders to prevail upon Nephi so that he will remove the famine. So we'll look at that more carefully in a few moments. Then in verses 10, and actually beginning in the latter half of verse 9 through verse 16, we see that Nephi does note the people's repentance. And in addition to this, he sees their efforts to expunge secret combinations from among them. So once he can see this, Then he goes before the Lord, and he advocates for the people, and he asks the Lord to send forth rain. So this prayer that he offers to the Lord has components in it that help us understand how we too can pray to the Lord. So as a result of this exercise of faith and power on Nephi's part, rain does return to the land in the 76th year of the reign of the judges, and the famine ends. And we'll read of that in verses 17 through 19. Once this happens, the people rejoice. And interestingly here, they also acknowledge Nephi's prophetic leadership. So we'll read of that in these verses. Verse 18 will say they did no more seek to destroy Nephi, but they did esteem him as a great prophet and a man of God. So as we would hope in verses 20 and 21, we'll see that peace and prosperity return to the Nephite nation. And the church spreads throughout Nephite and Lamanite lands. So these verses will tell us about that. Then, as we would expect, 
consistent with the pattern that we've seen repeatedly in the book of Helaman. Since this prosperity and peace has been uh, experienced by the people, it's very possible that forgetfulness will follow. We discover that this is the case. And in verses 22 and 23, contention and strife will return among the people in the 78th and 79th years. And during that time, it is quelled, as it says, by the prophets. It says that Nephi and Lehi and their brethren did preach unto the people insomuch that they did put an end to their strife in that same year. Well, the strife still doesn't end. And in verses 24 through 29, we find that Nephite dissenters uh, once again enter the scene and they uh, take these contentions and dissensions to another level. So they go to the Lamanites and they stir the Lamanites up to war. Not only do they do this, and this is the thing that we've always dreaded, I think, ever since uh, really when we got to Alma 35 and saw that that's how the Zoramites were inclined, that they wanted to go to the Lamanites and and, uh, become part of them and stir them up and have them attack the Nephites. So not only does that happen, but as we might remember, the plans of Gadianton had been hidden up to this point, and now these dissenters seek to recover the secret plans of Gadianton. And they do so, and they create great havoc, is the phrase that's used in verse 27. And finally, these robbers are driven back into their own lands. However, there's still uh, fighting between these robbers and uh, Nephite and presumably combined Nephite and Lamanite society. And in verses 30 through 35, We see that the campaign to remove the Gadianton robbers and to push them back does continue in the 80 and first year of the reign of the judges, but during this time the robbers increase in strength. So in this this tug of war between these two sides, it seems that the Gadianton robbers are winning out. And then in the final verses, 36 through 38, we read that wickedness increases generally in the Nephite nation through the 85th year. Again, the 85th year uh, takes us uh, up to 6 BC, so we're getting very close to the time frame of 3rd Nephi and very close to the way that things begin when we go into 3rd Nephi chapter 1. And that is because, again, in Helaman chapter 12, that will be Mormon's commentary, then in Helaman chapter 13 through 16, most of it is sermon, uh, but when there is storytelling narrative in that, that will take us then up to 1 BC. Well, now to return to verse 1 for a reading of the text. And now it came to pass in the seventy and second year of the reign of the judges that the contentions did increase, insomuch that there were wars throughout all the land among all the people of Nephi. And when it says here in verse 1 that the contentions did increase, as though we should know what those are, well, we should, because that's the way Helaman chapter 10 ended in verse 18, it said that there began to be contentions in so much that they were divided against themselves and began to slay one another with the sword. So those contentions turned violent and the sword became part of those contentions. And then the word war is used here in this verse. So wars throughout all the land among all the people of Nephi. We can think about all these parts of the land that we know of because of our careful reading of the book of Alma, these cities and lands that we become familiar with and fond of. And it seems that throughout all of these lands and cities, uh, this type of war and contention does prevail. Verse 2, 
and it was this secret band of robbers who did carry on this work of destruction and wickedness. And this war did last all that year, and in the seventy and third year it did also last. So the word wars, plural, is used in verse 1. But then in verse 2, it says that this war did last all year. So that seems to be a more of a gestalt perspective. In other words, this is one large war and there are, there are smaller battles that are taking place throughout all the land. But those are the conditions then that we open chapter 11 in. So now enter Nephi and his desire to get the people to repent and to remember. Verse 3, And it came to pass that in this year Nephi did cry unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, do not suffer that this people shall be destroyed by the sword. But, O Lord, rather let there be a famine in the land, to stir them up in remembrance of the Lord their God, and perhaps they will repent and turn unto thee. Nephi is not asking the Lord to do this immediately after the power was given to him, which we've just talked about in the introduction. Instead, he went through a season where he preached to all the people in all the land, and he was roundly rejected by them. He still did not exercise that power during that time. He didn't call fire down from heaven like Elijah, even though he seemed to have the same power. But it's now after that season had passed, and he seemingly gave all of these people a chance to accept him, that he now will appeal to the Lord in this way. And again, this really is an attempt ultimately to claim souls. This is not a vindictive maneuver. But he says, uh, perhaps they will repent and turn unto thee by so doing. Uh, This is a quote from Thomas R. Valletta. And in this, he quotes President Kimball in the same way that Ogden and Skinner did earlier. He says, as President Spencer W. Kimball taught, the Lord uses the weather sometimes to discipline his people for the violation of his laws. How would a famine motivate the people to turn to God? Modern revelation confirms that God will use many ways to humble the rebellious through the voice of thunderings and by the voice of lightnings and by the voice of tempests and by the voice of earthquakes and great hailstorms and by the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants section 43 verse 25. So now verse 5, a famine does begin. And uh, we're moving now into the 74th year of the reign of the judges. And so it was done, according to the words of Nephi. Of course, that's consistent with what we've read in the previous chapter. We knew that it would be done if he requested it, for thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will, as the Lord said in the previous chapter to Nephi. And there was a great famine upon the land, among all the people of Nephi. And thus in the seventy and fourth year, the famine did continue, and the work of destruction did cease by the sword, but became sore by famine. So the wars decreased as the famine increased. There's a verse in Doctrine and Covenants, section 46, verse 50, that also speaks in a similar manner um, to Helaman chapter 10, uh, where it talked about the way in which Helaman's will was lined with the, aligned with the Lord so that he would not ask that which is contrary to the will of the Lord. And that verse says, He that asketh, asketh in the Spirit asketh according to the will of God, wherefore it is done even as he asketh. So now, uh, the famine is on the rise, and we come into verse 6. And this work of destruction did also continue in the seventy and fifth year. For the earth was smitten that it was dry, and did not yield forth grain in the season of grain. And the whole earth was smitten, even among the Lamanites as well as among the Nephites, so that they were smitten that they did perish by thousands in the more wicked parts of the land. There's no doubt that many had died because of war during this time. 
but to have them die because of famine, and especially, as it says, by the thousands, to die by the thousands of famine, uh, this would have had quite an effect upon the people. And indeed, we can see that it is beginning to have an effect. Verse 7, And it came to pass that the people saw that they were about to perish by famine, and they began to remember the Lord their God, and they began to remember the words of Nephi. So when it says that, thousands already had perished, and so it, it must be their thinking that they all, en masse, will perish by famine. And the people began to plead with their chief judges and their leaders, that they would say unto Nephi, Behold, we know that thou art a man of God, and therefore cry unto the Lord our God that he turn away from us this famine, lest all the words which thou hast spoken concerning our destruction be fulfilled. There's something very interesting about the order of all of that. Uh, The people began to plead with their chief judges, but the people apparently did not plead to Nephi directly. There was some distance between the the people and Nephi, it seems. Uh, Why that is seems a little bit unclear. Maybe he was in isolation like Elijah was. Uh, In any event, the people seem to feel that the way to influence Nephi to call upon the Lord uh, is to have uh, these leaders of government go to him and prevail and to, to persuade him that the people were finally ready. And, and so that's what they asked him to do. It's also implied in this that the people began to believe that Nephi did indeed have this power. It seems as though that's something that they knew intuitively all along. They knew of his integrity. They knew of his closeness with God. They were just unwilling to obey him uh, until this point. And now we find that they very much do believe in Nephi and his power which is also uh, something of note. Thomas Arvaleta makes an interesting observation and poses a question here. He says, Incredibly, it took the Nephites more than two years to finally see the connection between their wickedness and the famine. Even then, they had to plead with their leaders to ask Nephi for relief. In your opinion, would it take this length of time for our modern society to be humbled? It's an interesting question, and I think... um, a famine on this scale uh, might indeed have that effect. Verse 9, And it came to pass that the judges did say unto Nephi, according to the words which had been desired. So these judges have not been kind to Nephi in the past. We would really wonder then what their tone was as they approached Nephi on this occasion and asked him to appeal to the Lord and to open the heavens back up and to allow it to rain. So now Nephi does begin to note the people's repentance, and he feels that these judges are asking him something that should be honored. And so in the end of uh, verse 9, we read, And it came to pass that when Nephi saw that the people had repented and did humble themselves in sackcloth, he cried again unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, behold, this people repenteth, and they have swept away the band of Gadianton from amongst them, insomuch that they have become extinct." and they have concealed their secret plans in the earth. So perhaps that was the main thing that Nephi was waiting for, and that the Lord was waiting for, that this band of Gadianton robbers would become extinct. So uh, we'll we'll gain insight into this in 3 Nephi, because we'll see that they don't don't live an agrarian kind of a life, uh, and, and, and famine would hit them especially hard, because they wouldn't have any stores. So that might be part of it. Uh, But in any event, that may indeed have been the goal. And this is a a very significant point here to see that the Gadianton band has actually become extinct and 
they've concealed their secret plans in the earth. Also really makes us wonder exactly what the mechanics of that were. But uh, apparently those secret plans were in writing. Uh, even though they had not been taken from Helaman's record, he, he was true to the charge that Alma gave him. But somehow they obtained these secret plans and must have put them in writing. And so they are now concealing them in the earth. Hugh Nibley commented on this in his teachings in the Book of Mormon, and it's in a really unique way. It's actually in a question-answer format, a dialogue between Nibley and a student. And the student said, Nephi said that the Gadianton robbers had become extinct and that they had concealed their secret plans in the earth. You said that meant they went underground? Then Nibley's answer was, I mean they literally went underground if they buried their secrets in the earth. They will dig them up later on, don't worry. These things are hid and dug up. You will find them. They put them in caves and their sacred places. So returning to the text, lest we miss the the distinct beginning to this prayer, it was in verse 10. Now as we move into verse 11, Nephi continues with his prayer. And the way in which he approaches the Lord is very insightful because he's speaking on behalf of the people, even though he clearly is in the Lord's good graces Uh, That could not be any more clear than it was in the previous chapter when the Lord said, Blessed art thou, Nephi, for those things which thou hast done, for I have beheld how thou hast with unweariness declared my word unto them. So he's favored of the Lord, but as he approaches him in this case, he seems to be doing it as an advocate of the people. That's a posture that prophets take at several different points in Scripture, which is always curious. So, verse 11, Now, O Lord, because of this their humility, wilt thou turn away thine anger? And let thine anger be appeased in the destruction of those wicked men whom thou hast already destroyed. O Lord, wilt thou turn away thine anger, yea, thy fierce anger, and cause that this famine may cease in the land? O Lord, wilt thou hearken unto me, and cause that it may be done according to my words, and send forth rain upon the face of the earth, that she may bring forth her fruit and her grain in the season of grain? That's something that would happen over a fairly slow series of time. Rain could come immediately, but earth uh, bringing forth her her fruit and her grain will still take some time. Nevertheless, that's the solution that um, Nephi is requesting of the Lord. O Lord, thou didst hearken unto my words when I said, Let there be a famine, that the pestilence of the sword might cease. And I know that thou wilt even at this time hearken unto my words, For thou saidst that if this people repent, I will spare them. So again from verse 14, we can see that the desired outcome of the famine is that, quote, the pestilence of the sword might cease. So we could certainly interpret pestilence of the sword as war. So that has ceased because of the widespread and pervasive nature of the famine. And not only has that ceased, but we've just learned that Gadianton and his followers have uh, become extinct and they've buried those plans in the earth. Yea, O Lord, and thou seest that they have repented because of the famine and the pestilence and destruction which has come unto them. Now, the because of there is of great interest. That that is why they have repented. And that might remind us of what it was that Alma said to the poor Zoramites who had been ostracized by the other Zoramites when he talked about being compelled to be humble. Um, as opposed to being humble on one's own volition. Verse 16, And now, O Lord, wilt thou turn away thine anger, and try again if they will serve thee, 
And if so, O Lord, thou canst bless them according to thy words which thou hast said. Here's some commentary from the Book of Mormon Institute manual on the nature of this prayer that extends from Helaman, um, verses 10 through 16. Nephi's prayer on behalf of his people illustrates the concern of a prophet for the people. As well as representing God to the people, at times prophets also seek to intervene on behalf of their people. When plagued by poisonous serpents, the children of Israel went to Moses and pled, Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. That's out of Numbers chapter 21, verse 7. In the Americas, Nephi the son of Lehi wrote, I pray continually for my people by day, and mine eyes water my pillow by night because of them, and I cry unto my God in faith. That's out of Second Nephi chapter 33, verse 3. Our current prophets continue to pray for us. In the general conference following the tragic terrorist events on September 11, 2001, President Gordon B. Hinckley prayed, quote, O God, our eternal Father, whose children we are, we look to Thee in faith in this dark and solemn time. Please, dear Father, bless us with faith, bless us with love, bless us with charity in our hearts, bless us with a spirit of perseverance to root out the terrible evils that are in this world. Give protection and guidance to those who are engaged actively in carrying forth the things of battle. Bless them, preserve their lives, save them from harm and evil. Hear the prayers of their loved ones for their safety. O Father, look with mercy upon us, our own nation, and its friends in this time of need. Spare us and help us to walk with faith ever in Thee and ever in Thy beloved Son, on whose mercy we count and to whom we look as our Savior and our Lord. Bless the cause of peace and bring it quickly to us again. We humbly plead with Thee, asking that Thou wilt forgive our arrogance, pass by our sins, be kind and gracious to us, and cause our hearts to turn with love toward Thee. We humbly pray in the name of Him who loves us all, even the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our Savior. Amen. So such a beautiful Book of Mormon example of a prophet praying on behalf of the people to the Lord, uh, acting as their advocate. And of course, a beautiful modern-day example in the case of President Gordon B. Hinckley doing exactly the same thing. Now to turn from um, a look at the actual content of what is being said here and to look just for a moment during this prayer at 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 a literary characteristic that it has that was pointed out by Ronald Anderson. He said, according to Robert Alter, Repetition of a word or phrase is one of the most common literary devices used in the narrative of the Bible. Martin Buber noted this stylistic element and called it Leitwörter, a German word meaning leading words, guide words, or theme words. Repetition of the phrase, O Lord, in Helaman 11 and 4, and also in verses 10 through 16, reminds the reader that Nephi is praying to the Lord, even pleading with him for his people. Well, after Nephi prayed to the Lord the first time in verse 4, uh, we, find, we, we read in verse 5 that, and so it was done according to the words of Nephi. So now this prayer has ended in verse 16, and we would expect again, because of Nephi's prophetic gift, that it would be, and so it was done according to the words of Nephi. So what we do find in verse 17 is, and it came to pass that in the 70 and 6th year, the Lord did turn away his anger from the people and caused that rain should fall upon the earth, insomuch that it did bring forth her fruit in the season of her fruit. And it came to pass that it did bring forth her grain in the season of her grain. So they still had to wait for those seasons to come to fruition. Uh, Pun intended, I guess. 
before they could fully be fed and could fully recover from this famine. And behold, the people did rejoice and glorify God, and the whole face of the land was filled with rejoicing. And they did no more seek to destroy Nephi, but they did esteem him as a great prophet and a man of God, having great power and authority given unto him from God. And behold, Lehi his brother was not a wit behind him as to things pertaining to righteousness. Wit is an interesting word, and we saw that in Alma chapter 32, with reference to mercy, being able to rob justice. And Alma said, nay, that can't be done, not one wit. It's great to pause and to consider Lehi here for a moment, and, and the way in which Mormon uh, finds, uh, uh, finds room to mention Lehi here is significant. Ogden and Skinner have written, In this great narrative about the prophet Nephi and the dramatic events surrounding his ministry, there appears a little insert, an almost hidden comment about his brother. And behold, Lehi, his brother, was not a whit behind him as to things pertaining to righteousness. Lehi is relegated to the wings, as it were, while his brother Nephi is the main actor on the stage of this part of history. So it was with Sam, brother of the earlier Nephi, and so it was centuries later with Hiram Smith, while his brother Joseph took center stage. President Howard W. Hunter counseled, If you feel that much of what you do does not make you very famous, take heart. Most of the best people who ever lived weren't very famous either. Serve and grow faithfully and quietly. The Savior taught that thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. That's out of Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. And inasmuch as men do good, they shall in no wise lose their reward. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 58, verse 28. President Howard W. Hunter referenced Lehi on another occasion and said something very similar at that time as well. He said, Not all of us are going to be like Moroni, catching the acclaim of our colleagues all day every day. Most of us will be quiet, relatively unknown folks who come and go and do our work without fanfare. You too are part of God's army. The great prophet Nephi mentioned in the book of Helaman had a brother named Lehi, who is seemingly mentioned only in passing, but is noted as being not a whit behind Nephi as to things pertaining to righteousness. I think the idea in verse 18 that the people would esteem Nephi as a great prophet and a man of God after having suffered so terribly during this famine. Uh, thousands were killed. Uh, thousands died as a result of this famine. Uh, Nephi told them to repent before this famine was effectuated. It would seem that they would have blamed him for the famine and that there would have been some spite. Um, they, they would have had hard feelings towards him, perhaps, um, if they believed that he is the one that did it. Yet, instead, it seems that they had love for him and esteem for him as the earth finally began to bear fruit again and it began to rain prior to that. So I think that's of great interest. I think it shows us that not only were the people fed once again and restored to their health, but through this process they truly did repent to the degree that they could see the truth and feel the truth of Nephi's words. They did begin to esteem him highly and to love him as a prophet because he brought the gospel to them and they must have come to the point where they were feeling the fruits of the Spirit, as it says in Galatians, and, and the joy that comes from living the gospel. And they could see that there was wisdom in what the Lord was doing during this time. They most certainly wanted the famine to end, but very interestingly had developed this appreciation for Nephi in the process. There's something, I think, very compelling in that. Well, now, uh, verses 20 and 21, we'll read about the return of this uh, peace and prosperity in the Nephite nation. 
And thus it had come to pass that the people of Nephi began to prosper again in the land, and began to build up their waste places, and began to multiply and spread, even until they did cover the whole face of the land, both on the northward and on the southward, from the sea west to the sea east. And it came to pass that the seventy and sixth year did end in peace, and the seventy and seventh year began in peace, and when it says began, we think, "Uh uh-oh, it didn't go all the way through in peace. And the church did spread throughout the face of all the land, and the more part of the people, both the Nephites and the Lamanites, did belong to the church, and they did have exceedingly great peace in the land, and thus ended the seventy and seventh year. So this is a great time. This is a great moment. might remind us in a way of all the damage control that had been finally successfully completed when we came to the book of Alma, where the Lamanites were restored to their lands, the borders were restored, and those beautiful fortified cities had um, uh, uh, been uh, um, regained and were now under Nephite control once again. It, we, we were brought to a point of resolution, and we just hoped that things could stay that way. We've, we found out that they did not, of course, when we turned the page and began Helam in chapter 1. We're kind of to a similar point here, really, where the fighting has largely uh, ceased. Uh, people are prospering. They value Nephi as their prophet. And the church is spreading as well throughout the face of the land in the Nephites and the Lamanites' lands. Uh, So this is truly a wonderful time, and we hope so much that it can continue. Uh, Here we are in verse 21 with that hope. But of course, because of the rhythm of the book of Helaman, um, we, we know that that is not likely. And sure enough, as we come into the next two verses, we'll see that contention and strife will return. Verse 22, And also they had peace in the seventy and eighth year, save it were a few contentions concerning the points of doctrine which had been laid down by the prophets. So contentions over points of doctrine in particularly. A very interesting phrase there, because that's one of the things that the Savior will be quick to discuss when he returns in 3 Nephi 11. He'll talk about how doctrine is not established through contention. Uh, there's There's a fundamental fallacy in the idea that doctrine can be established by contention. And that fallacy is that it's something that men would come to, that they would sort out between themselves, when the truth is, it's truth that should be dispensed from God and confirmed by the receipt of revelation. That's how doctrine is established, not through contention. Yet it, uh, it is true that in the many ologies and, and uh, academic disciplines of our day, that truth is uh, established in those arenas through debate, through rigorous um, reasoning. Hypotheses come from this and they're tested. And there is some utility to that in the academic world, but in the world of doctrine and in, in, the, in the Lord's kingdom, it works differently. So we can see that this uh, became muddled and confused in the 70 and 8th year. Verse 23, And in the 70 and 9th year there began to be much strife. But it came to pass that Nephi and Lehi, and many of their brethren who knew concerning the true points of doctrine, having many revelations daily, therefore they did preach unto the people insomuch that they did put an end to their strife in that same year. So we can see that it was contention over doctrine that was causing much of the problem. And then in verse 23, that prophets such as Nephi and Lehi and many of their brethren uh, added clarity to what the true points of doctrine were and that revelation and the receipt thereof was key to that process, 
And that is what put an end to their strife. So there's a formula there that is to be seen. The Institute Manual says Elder Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles indicated what comprised the true doctrine of Christ. Quote, The true doctrine of Christ is that all men must come unto him, gain faith, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, and endure in faith to the end in order to gain salvation. President Boyd K. Packer, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, made this statement regarding the true power of doctrine. True doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. Study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior. That is why we stress so forcefully the study of the doctrines of the gospel. Now, this is a beautiful example of this of this uh, uh, concept that Elder Packer taught. Uh, that, by the way, came out of a conference report from Elder Packer in 1986. I think personally I remember him first saying that in 1997 in a conference talk when he, when he said almost the same thing verbatim. It was, I think, one of Elder Packer's more eloquent and beautiful teachings. But we can see that being set into motion here in verses 22 and 23, and that uh, the contention did decrease and that peace was restored. In other words, a desired behavioral outcome was effected through the proper teaching of doctrine. The improper teaching is to contend uh, and may the strongest doctrine win or the strongest purveyor or proponent of one particular doctrine win. But instead, it is revelation so that the Lord's will and his truth can actually come through that divine channel and distill upon the hearts of those who are ready to receive it. That's the true formula. And when that is done, behavior is naturally changed. With respect to the phrase points of doctrine, Robert J. Matthews has written in his book, A Bible, A Bible. One dictionary defines a point as a penetrating detail, a precise concept, a prominent or important item, the telling part of an argument or discussion, the salient feature, the precise thing, the turning point. The Book of Mormon cannot be the most correct of any book on earth and be wrong on the most important doctrines of the gospel. It is my observation that the points of doctrine given to us in the Book of Mormon and other Latter-day Scripture will answer all the major doctrinal questions that have been raised during and as the result of the apostasy. Well, as we'll now see, as we move into verse 24, that was a, a, a victory in this, in this war, but uh, things are taking a turn for the worse overall. And it came to pass that in the 80th year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, there were a certain number of the dissenters from the people of Nephi. So a new problem here. Uh, we, we just had doctrines that were clarified and behavior was adjusted commensurately. And uh, some measure of peace was enjoyed, but now something new has happened, and it's a it's a, a a new variation on a familiar theme where we have dissenters who want to stir the Lamanites to attack the Nephites. So there were a certain number of the dissenters from the people of Nephi who had some years before gone over unto the Lamanites, and there are several instances in which that has happened. But we did read of another such movement in the Book of Helaman and taken upon themselves the name of Lamanites. Now, the Zoramites did that, and others did that. And also a certain number who were real descendants of the Lamanites, being stirred up to anger by them or by those dissenters. Therefore, they commenced a war with their brethren. So they've stirred them up to anger. 
to the degree that they're willing to go to war. And they did commit murder and plunder. And then they would retreat back into the mountains and into the wilderness and secret places, hiding themselves that they could not be discovered, receiving daily an addition to their numbers, inasmuch as there were dissenters that went forth unto them. So this is a movement that has begun. This is a trend. And these uh, dissenters are turning into marauders in a way. And so we would worry that uh, if they're going to adopt that lifestyle, will they also find the secret plans that were hidden by Gadianton and uh, reconstitute that order uh, that we've read so much about so far? Verse 26, And thus in time, yea, even in the space of not many years, they became an exceedingly great band of robbers, and they did search out all the secret plans of Gadianton, and thus they became robbers of Gadianton. So the robbers of Gadianton are back. They have been made extinct in this chapter, and now by the end of the chapter, they have come back. When it says they did search out their secret plans, we wonder indeed if they found those secret plans that had been buried, if there were those who knew where they had been buried, and they actually went to the earth and recovered them. We also know that there is another way for all of this to happen, And it is that Satan could have inspired them directly as to how to execute those secret plans and exactly what they were, uh, because that's how he did it with Cain, and that's how he did it with Gadianton and Kishkumen. So it, it could have been in that way as well. Verse 27, Now behold, these robbers did make great havoc, yea, even great destruction among the people of Nephi and also among the people of the Lamanites. And it came to pass that it was expedient that there should be a stop put to this work of destruction. Therefore they sent an army of strong men into the wilderness and upon the mountains to search out this band of robbers and to destroy them. But behold, it came to pass that in the same year they were driven back even into their own lands, and thus ended the eightieth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. So this is no longer an issue of Nephites versus Lamanites, and that becomes very clear here in verse 27 where it says that this great destruction, this great havoc that was being wreaked by these Gadianton robbers was, was being perpetrated upon the people of Nephi and also among the people of the Lamanites. So it's now righteous, or at least civil, Nephites and Lamanites that are in a campaign to remove these Gadianton robbers. They'd have some measure of success in verse 29 as they're able to drive them back into their own lands. But this war is continuing as we come into verse 30. And it came to pass in the commencement of the eighty and first year, they did go forth again against this band of robbers and did destroy many. And they were also visited with much destruction. And they were again obliged to return out of the wilderness and out of the mountains unto their own lands because of the exceeding greatness of the numbers of those robbers who infested the mountains and the wilderness. So the, the pronouns here can make this confusing, but it's clear that the Nephites and Lamanites that fought against these Gadianton robbers finally had to really retreat from the positions that they had maintained because the robbers were becoming so strong and had gained so many numbers. So verse 22, and it came to pass that thus ended this year. So we get the sense that by the end of this year, the tides are turning and the robbers are uh, are on the rise and uh, those who are righteous are losing uh, many from among them. And the robbers did still increase and wax strong insomuch that they did defy the whole armies of the Nephites and also of the Lamanites, and they did cause great fear to come unto the people upon all the face of the land.
This raises many questions for us. Uh, We had a sense of where the borders were in the Nephite versus Lamanite wars. Uh, Here, as the Nephites and the Lamanites fight the Gadiat and robbers together, there's kind of a sense of border because uh, there's the wilderness and then there's not the wilderness. And it's clear that the wilderness is the domain of the Gadiant and robbers. So we can see that much, but we still wonder exactly what it was that motivated these robbers and also what it was that uh, gave them the ability to do what they did so successfully. To this question, there's a wonderful portion of this book that we've uh, referenced several points in, in, in the recent past. Uh, on the Book of Mormon by Nyman and Tate, and it, it has several contributors. One particular contributor to this book is Alan Christensen, and a section in this book that he wrote is called Nephite Trade Networks and the Dangers of a Class Society. So he said, as described in the Book of Mormon, the formation of trade networks for the accumulation of wealth was also accompanied by the rise of violent groups, such as the Gadiant and robbers, who sought control for personal gain. The Gadiant Society was a far more powerful and complex group than their description as robbers implies. They often commanded huge armies capable of defying the armed forces of both the Nephite and Lamanite nations. And and that's kind of an unspoken truth that we're picking up from the text here. So it's very interesting to hear uh, Christensen articulating this question that we have. The motivation of the Gadiantans was primarily economic and tied to the newfound wealth flowing into Nephite society through international trade. They therefore operated both among the Nephites and the Lamanite kingdoms. The establishment of international trade was not always a peaceful process. In addition to a system of mutually cooperative trade alliances, a number of ancient American societies found it desirable to engage in plunder and warfare as an instrument of state economic policy. Trade served in many cases as a pretext to conquest. An example of such a warlike state in the first century BC was Monte Alban, a fortified mountain sanctuary in the state of Oaxaca, Mexico. In addition to far-reaching trade contracts, including Camin al Monte Alban practiced a systematic campaign of conquest to control its trade routes and ensure its economic strength through forced tribute collection. Building J, constructed on the main plaza of Monte Alban, served as a monument to the city's military victories. It was decorated with over 50 carved stones depicting towns and villages defeated by its armies. From 100 BC to 100 AD, Monte Alban was able to conquer an area of some 30,000 square kilometers. Now, returning back to the text with that increased piece of insight, Verse 33, Yea, for they did visit many parts of the land, and did do great destruction unto them. So perhaps that was under the pretext of trade, as they were doing that. Yea, they did kill many, and did carry away others captive into the wilderness, yea, and more especially their women and their children. All right, so now we get the sense that there's even some form of human trafficking that's happening with the the evil that the Gadiant robbers are perpetrating, and the way in which they're waging war upon the righteous and upon the civilized. Now, this great evil which came unto the people because of their iniquity did stir them up again in remembrance of the Lord their God. And thus ended the eighty and first year of the reign of the judges. So this time there's war and fighting, there's no famine, the famine has ended. But the people are sufficiently stirred up again to remembrance because of the terrible evil that the Gadiant robbers are perpetrating upon them. Verse 36, And in the eighty and second year, they began again to forget their Lord. So just as we had some hope at the end of the previous year, 
that uh, the people would turn righteous again. We're reading here that they began to forget the Lord their God. And in the 80 and third year, they began to wax strong in iniquity. And in the 80 and fourth year, they did not mend their ways. So while they didn't like what the Gadiant robbers were doing, they certainly didn't like the, the murder and the war, the robbing, the plundering, and certainly the human trafficking, if that's the right way to describe the kidnapping that we've just read of in the previous couple or a couple verses back. Even though they didn't like that, they were dissociating those undesirable things from their wickedness. That's a problem that we have in today's society, of course, that this freedom that the Lord gives us to choose allows us to conceptually dissociate our wickedness from our, our misfortune that's coming out of that wickedness. And so that seems to be what's happening here. Verse 37, And it came to pass in the 80 and 5th year, they did wax stronger and stronger in their pride and in their wickedness, and thus they were ripening again for destruction. So we know what it can mean when they wax stronger in pride and the danger of that. And when we read the word ripening, uh, we know that the nation is certainly getting close to destruction. It's, it's the language that Moroni uses in Ether chapter 12 when he talks about when it is that the, the promised land will lose its promise and that the people will lose their protection, and it's when they're ripened in iniquity. So, verse 38, and thus ended the 80 and 5th year. The Book of Mormon Institute manual offers the following commentary on these verses that we've just read that take place after the famine is lifted, and that the people are restored, um, and that they are righteous and prosperous, and then how things devolve from that point. So it says the prophet Joseph Smith taught that the devil always sets up his kingdom at the very same time in opposition to God. Whenever the Savior's church is established or strengthened, the adversary seeks to create resistance in one form or another to battle the progress made by the saints of God. We see an example of Satan's opposition emerge in Helaman chapter 11. The Gadianton robbers had been swept off the land. The righteous Nephite and Lamanite members of the church had great peace. Uh, we saw that especially in Helaman chapter 11 verse 21. Only a few years passed, however, before Satan's influence on the people led them to return to iniquity and allowed the Gadianton robbers to regain their power and influence. This is sobering indeed, I think, as we read this chapter. It's uh, up to us when we read of uh, when we read any history, really, uh, whether we identify with the victims of of a crime or the perpetrators. Uh, it's always more complex than we might imagine, and uh, we we share the same human and natural tendencies as the perpetrators in the tragic stories of history, and uh, we we would do well to wonder what side we would find ourselves on if we lived during this time, uh, whether we would be among those uh, who were counted as righteous. Uh, in in the midst of such uh, prevailing wickedness. So it's an important question, I think. And Elder Maxwell once said that significant moral decay can happen within a single generation, whether in a nation or in a family. So we seem to be in the midst of such a time today, uh, just as these people were in Helaman chapter 11. And so it certainly gives us pause to think. Well, much is to come in the book of Helaman, and we will look forward to reading Helaman chapter 12, uh, where we uh, kind of set the narrative aside, and, and uh, this, this progress through the, the timeline, we set it aside for a moment. And it's a good time at this point, as we're just 
we're just amazed at, at this vacillation between uh, remembering and being righteous and forgetting and being wicked and all the suffering that is a result of this cycle that's uh, commonly referred to as the pride cycle. And as, as we look at this, it's, it's finally time now for Mormon as editor and narrator to step in and to comment on what it is that we're taking in because it's, it's a dizzying pace uh, it's it's a whirlwind as we read the book of Helaman from all the way from chapter one up until now. So finally in Helaman chapter 12, we'll press pause and Mormon will give us his commentary on what it is that we've taken in so far. So he will help us to process that. So we have that to look forward to here very soon. Uh, for now, this brings us to the end of Helaman chapter 11. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.